Chapter 2 of The Birth of Tragedy, or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 2. Thus far we have considered the Apollonian and his antithesis, the Dionysian, as artistic powers, which burst forth from nature herself without the meditation of the human artist, and in which her art impulses are satisfied in the most immediate and direct way. First, as the pictorial world of dreams, the perfection of which has no connection whatever with the intellectual height or artistic culture of the unit man, and again, as drunken reality, which likewise does not heed the unit man, but even seeks to destroy the individual and redeem him by a mystic a feeling of oneness. Anent these immediate art states of nature, every artist is either an imitator, to wit, either an Apollonian, an artist in dreams, or a Dionysian, an artist in ecstasies, or, finally, as for instance in Greek tragedy, an artist in both dreams and ecstasies. So we may perhaps picture him, as in his Dionysian drunkenness and mystical self-abnegation, lonesome and apart from the reveling choruses, he sinks down, and how now, through Apollonian dream inspiration, his own state, i.e., his oneness with the primal source of the universe, reveals itself to him in a symbolical dream picture. After these general premisings and contrastings, let us now approach the Greeks, in order to learn in what degree and to what height these art impulses of nature were developed in them, whereby we shall be enabled to understand and appreciate more deeply the relation of the Greek artist to his archetypes, or, according to the Aristotelian expression, quote, the imitation of nature, end quote. In spite of all the dream literature and the numerous dream anecdotes of the Greeks, we can speak only conjecturally, though with a fair degree of certainty, of their dreams. Considering the incredibly precise and unerring plastic power of their eyes, as also their manifest and sincere delight in colors, we can hardly refrain, to the shame of everyone born later, from assuming for their very dreams a logical causality of lines and contours, colors and groups, a sequence of scenes resembling their best reliefs, the perfection of which would certainly justify us, if a comparison were possible, in designating the dreaming Greeks as Homer's and Homer as a dreaming Greek. In a deeper sense than when modern man, in respect to his dreams, ventures to compare himself with Shakespeare. On the other hand, we should not have to speak conjecturally if asked to disclose the immense gap which separated the Dionysian Greek from the Dionysian barbarian. From all quarters of the ancient world, to say nothing of the modern, from Rome as far as Babylon, we can prove the existence of Dionysian festivals, the type of which bears at best the same relation to the Greek festivals as the bearded satyr, who borrowed his name and attributes from the goat, does to Dionysus himself. 
in nearly every instance the centre of these festivals lay in extravagant sexual licentiousness the waves of which overwhelmed all family life and its venerable traditions the very wildest beasts of nature were let loose here including that detestable mixture of lust and cruelty which has always seemed to me the genuine witch's draught from some time however it would seem that the greeks were perfectly secure and guarded against the feverish agitations of these festivals the knowledge of which entered greece by all the channels of land and sea by the figure of apollo himself rising here in full pride who could not have held out the gorgon's head to a more dangerous power than this grotesquely uncouth dionysian it is in doric art that this majestically rejecting attitude of apollo perpetuated itself this opposition became more precarious and even impossible when from out of the deepest root of the hellenic nature similar impulses finally broke forth and made way for themselves the delphic god by a seasonably affected reconciliation was now contented with taking the destructive arms from the hands of his powerful antagonists this reconciliation marks the most important moment in the history of the greek cult wherever we turn our eyes we may observe the revolutions resulting from this event it was the reconciliation of two antagonists with the sharp demarcation of the boundary lines to be thenceforth observed by each and with periodical transmission of testimonials in reality the chasm was not bridged over but if we observe how under the pressure of this conclusion of peace the dionysian power manifested itself we shall now recognize in the dionysian orgies of the greeks as compared with the babylonian sakea and their retrogression of man to the tiger and the ape the significance of festivals of world redemption and days of transfiguration not till then does nature attain her artistic jubilee not till then does the rupture of the principium individuationis become an artistic phenomenon that horrible witch's draught of sensuality and cruelty was here powerless only the curious blending and duality in the emotions of the dionysian revelers reminds one of it just as medicines remind one of deadly poisons that phenomenon to wit that pains beget joy that jubilation rings painful sounds out of the breast from the highest joy sounds the cry of horror or the yearning wail over an irretrievable loss in these greek festivals a sentimental trait as it were breaks forth from nature as if she must sigh over her dismemberment into individuals the song and pantomime of such dually minded revellers was something new and unheard of in the homeric grecian world and the dionysian music in particular excited awe and horror if music as it would seem was previously known as an apollonian art it was strictly speaking only as the wave-beat of rhythm 
the formative power of which was developed by the representation of apollonian conditions the music of apollo was doric architectonics in tones but in merely suggested tones such as those of the sitara the very element which forms the essence of dionysian music and hence of music in general is carefully excluded as unapollonian namely the thrilling power of the tone the uniform stream of the melos and the thoroughly incomparable world of harmony in the dionysian dithyram man is incited to the highest exaltation of all his symbolic faculties something never before experienced struggles for utterance the annihilation of the veil of maya oneness as genius of the race i of nature the essence of nature is now to be expressed symbolically a new world of symbols is required for once the entire symbolism of the body not only the symbolism of the lips face and speech but the whole pantomime of dancing which sets all the members into rhythmical motion thereupon the other symbolic powers those of music in rhythmics dynamics and harmony suddenly become impetuous to comprehend this collective discharge of all the symbolic powers a man must have already attained that height of self-abnegation which wills to express itself symbolically through these powers the dithyrambic votary of dionysus is therefore understood only by those like himself with what astonishment must the apollonian greek have beheld him with an astonishment which was all the greater the more it was mingled with the shuddering suspicion that all this was in reality not so very foreign to him yea that like unto a veil his apollonian consciousness only hid this dionysian world from his view end of chapter two recording by john vanstan savannah georgia